welcome to the Conscious Culture Cafe, the podcast that explores how you can lean into your purpose, live your values, and enhance your social impact through your work. I'm your host, Kathy Miller Perkins. Just a short year ago, corporations rushed to publish statements supporting Black Lives Matter. The movement really did feel different this time. The question we explore in this episode is what have they done since? Have they acted? Have they really supported through their behaviors the positions that they expressed? My guest today is Nikki Lanier, and she is back for a second visit to the Conscious Culture Cafe. While Nikki has held several human resources positions in corporations in her earlier career, currently she is Senior Vice President of the Louisville Branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. I am so honored to have her join me again today to reflect one more time on the question, Do Black People Matter? Welcome back, Nikki. It's so good to have a a conversation again with you, approximately a year after the first one. Wow, lots happened in the last year since we talked. Let's start out, if you don't mind, Nikki, by you're just giving us your general observations about what's been going on over the past year. Well, first, thank you so much for permitting me yet another opportunity to engage with you and engage with your audience. I just so adore all that you do on this podcast and all that you are. And so thanks for the opportunity to continue to share my musings. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a year. It's definitely been a year. And I think that we've made some progress. It's way too soon to really understand if that progress is rooted more in the perfunctory kind of obligatory progress, or if in fact it is rooted in like long-term efficacy, real understanding and unpacking of the venomous sting of racism and the many ways that it has manifested. So I can't say that I'm displeased with what I am seeing and experiencing and feeling these days versus all other days prior to 2020. But, uh, you know, we still have a lot, a lot more to do. A lot more to do. Well, yeah. And, and this is quite an important day. Can you say what this day means to you? Yeah. So today is the, the day that we remember George Floyd. I mean, we remember him every day, but a year ago he died on this day on May 25th. And I, uh, I've, I'm torn, Kathy, because I both, I, I, I both want to try to immerse myself in the memory of him and, and all of what he represented in terms of being catalytic to spur a movement and a reawakening. But I also am trying to protect my soul and my, my psyche and my sense of peace because kind of reliving it is hurtful and it, it's just painful. Yeah, but it's, you know, I'm thinking a lot about in terms of policy and reform, what has happened to really assure that there will be no more George Floyds, anything near that kind of senseless slaughtering in a very public way. So how do we assure that that doesn't happen, especially at the hands of agents of our government? who are ostensibly positioned to protect and serve and that yet those concepts continue to be so elusive 
for Black people, this concept of being protected and served by by our government is is just is still too elusive. So, you know, today's a big deal. All these days are very big deals, but today in particular, my heart continues to go out to to George Floyd and his family and his daughter. And oh man, it's just it's just really tough. It's a it's a tough time. Yeah, well, and and last year you were actually talking about how hard it was to differentiate your personal reactions from your more professional thoughts. Uh, has that become easier, harder? Where where are you now with that differentiation? Maybe it's not as important to differentiate. What do you think? That's it, Kathy. That's it. I do, it's easier because I don't feel compelled any longer to distinguish between the two. And to be blunt, I, I feel a sense of empowerment about talking about my personal convictions and furtherance of my professional well-being and the, and the well-being of the, the only country that I know and the employment setting that I've become accustomed to and the professional sector with which I traverse. There is no distinguishing between the personal and the professional, um, especially on the issue of race and racism. Um, I think I'm even more anchored and more dogged in articulating a point of view around the extent to which racism has really invaded every aspect of of Black American life, and to, in fact, white American life. So every 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 person really in this country is in some way impacted by the realities around our structural and institutional and behavioral norms that dictate who gets to matter and who doesn't. And so talking about that in the context of my work is important and in many respects even welcome, but also talking about that in the in as the experience of a black woman trying to manage it all, trying to manage both being the patient and the doctor, you know, trying to be both the problem and the problem solver, or trying to be, but being presented or regarded in this country as both the problem, but also being expected to solve the problem, is its own weight and its own conundrum. And I am at least, I, I find some level of respite and being able to talk about that out loud in every setting that I find myself in without fear of reprisal or, you know, in an in a overly condemning way without fear of losing my job or my community standing. Um, but there's some sense of um, respite that comes with that. Was there a turning point for you when that became unimportant, that differentiation? I think when the, when really when the protests began here in the streets of, of Louisville, when I was bottling up, all of what I was trying to personally reconcile around Ahmaud Aubrey and, and Brianna and, and George Floyd, what I was trying to personally reconcile, I saw explode a thousandfold on, in the streets of Louisville and Minneapolis and really across the world um, and was heartened, as odd as this is to say, I was heartened to see that it was a struggle that was more universal than not. And I felt activated and unleashed in my desire to, you know, bring to the forefront of my psyche and my being and my, oh, just everything about me, uh, just bring to bring to the forefront of um, how I behaved this this angst. And but 
not just the angst, but also the desire to remedy. Because, you know, this is how I think about it, Kathy. We have a lot of folks have done a really great job in condemning racism. We've seen that corporately. We've seen that philanthropically. We've seen that through communities, economic development folks. We've seen that through politics or politicians. We've seen that through uh, governmental offices. And that is important, but it's it pales in comparison to the importance of what should follow from that. And that's, you know, that's what I, that's what I feel activated now to talk more about is that the condemnation is not enough. We really have to begin to repair. We have to repair all that racism has eviscerated for not just black people, but black people primarily, you know, America cut its teeth on how to hate at the expense of black people. So they, they, you know, so what, what Hispanics feel and what our Asian American brothers and sisters feel and what, you know, other groups of folks feel is largely the teeth, if you will, was cut. The pablum was nurtured through the, the black body. And so, you know, really understanding that we have got to repair. Condemnation is great, but it's not enough. Yeah, yeah, that that's for sure. I was wondering how you were feeling about that. And you you've talked about two different arenas, really, the corporate and the community. Let's start with the corporate. Let's talk about what's happened with corporations over the last year. About a year ago, corporations were making statements in support of Black Lives Matter. It looked like maybe real change was on the way. They seem to be willing to look at race with a new lens. What's happened within corporations, in your opinion? Have they made progress? I guess it depends on how you define progress. I I think, well, let, let me put it this way. I read an article today in Bloomberg, and it talked about you know whether companies can do more since George Floyd's death. And I, I think it did a great job of kind, kind of laying out you know, we, we, we see companies, again, doing a great job with the condemnation they don't understand or have yet to articulate en masse. What is the long-term plan now? Yeah, yeah. Now that you've got this information, now that you've got this reckoning and this, you're positioning yourself for racial reconciliation and you've got a clearer awareness of the, how, how racism has eviscerated so many people in this country and how it has bled into the work environment. What is the long-term plan to solve that? And what I know, and you know, and your listeners know, Kathy, about America's corporations is that when they are steadfast and dedicated to a remedy, to a strategic ideal, to an ideology, that there are resources that are allocated against that time, money, intellect, mind share, all allocated against assuring that that strategic imperative is met. And so we are excellent at that. We're excellent at setting a vision, casting a vision, allocating resources against that vision, building capability toward that vision, and continually checking in to assure that we're marching toward it. So we should see all of that momentum as it relates to race and racism and you know the eradication of the same. So as what I'm seeing now with companies is that you know there's a lot that are kind of getting dialed up to be more transparent and more vulnerable with regard to their reporting and their statistics on how they are utilizing black and brown talent in their workplaces. I'm seeing more companies that are being transparent and releasing their EEO1s, which of course, you know, captures their internal demographics by race 
they're about job groups. And that's cool. I mean, that's fine. And that helps us understand what the current state is, but it doesn't, again, help us understand what is the to be. As is, is interesting to know. And quite frankly, I don't know that it, it reveals anything that's all that earth shattering. I mean, I think we kind of knew that en masse, American companies are just not great in advancing Black talent in throughout and up its ranks. No surprise there. The EEO ones reinforce that. So again, what is the... What else are we doing? What other effort are we putting in place to make sure that the numbers that you're releasing today look nothing like the numbers that you're going to be releasing tomorrow? So we're also seeing more investors that are pushing for more visibility, more disclosure. I understand that the new leader, the new chair of the SEC has talked a lot about disclosure rules being his top priority. So, you know, on one hand, I I think, and it, and it's, it pains me a little bit to know that it will probably take a lot of external pressure, continual pressure, continual public expectation, lots and lots of you know expectations around that. I think that that will continue to help companies get where they need to go. That so they'll move more through compliance than through than through commitment. It's frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, really. Well, last year you talked about how companies were good at diversity, but they weren't good at using the equity lens. Can you say more about that? I gather from what you're saying now that they're still not using an equity lens. What What do you think? Yeah, I just think that, listen, I, got, I, have, I have a whole like 45 minute talk that I could probably give on my frustrations with DE&I and, and why we just attach such infantile thinking I mean, in so many other areas, we as corporate leaders are so sophisticated and elevated in our maturity and innovative in the way that we approach problem solving. But for DNI, we just tend to be so ridiculously infantile. So, <laughs> and let me tell you, and let me tell you why I say that. So, okay. here's well, I just actually got a solicitation yesterday from a firm. I was looking for a general counsel. So their recruiter reached out to me and was telling me all these great things about the job and blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, I'm not really interested in leaving the Federal Reserve for, especially to work for another company. But let me take a look at your website. I'd really be interested to know more about you. So the first thing I did was look at their governance on their board. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. No black people. Right, right. 12 people. No black people. Employee and customer feedback with the quotes and the photos and how great their products and services are. No black people. So I called him back and I said, why are you calling me? (laughs) to even And I said, let me tell you my worry. I said, what your organization has already conveyed to me is that you're not necessarily interested in resilience. You're not necessarily interested in growth that saves yourself. You're not interested in being a positive disruptor. You're not interested in being an agent of change or folding in to the burgeoning ESG framework, like the environmental social cover, like that you conveyed just in the page that I saw says nothing. So I have no desire to have any conversation, nor do I have a desire to share with my network this opening. But what I would love to do is have is put your leadership in, in touch with some folks that I know that do really great diversity work. His retort was, yes, we need help in the DE&I space. I said, no, you don't. You need help in the D space. Right? <laughs> yes, the D right. space 
Because you can't, there's no way you can get to the equity and inclusion conversations, ideology, mindset, belief systems, if you can't even understand how important it is to have someone of a different hue in your workplace. So that's your strategy. I mean, there's no shame in that. But just recognize that this is an evolution, that the DEI, in my view, in my opinion, DEI is a maturation kind of scale. And they, they, when you think about these concepts, they have to be modulated. They have to be paced. They have to be sequenced. They have their own strategic imperatives and values and norms that have to be reset and adjusted and jettisoned in order to, in order to make each of these principles real. So I think diversity is the low-hanging fruit. Many companies have at least done a decent job in getting other people of, uh, of different races and faces in the building. Uh, equity, on the other hand, and again, this is my def- definition. It is defined differently for, for, for various organizations, but equity is proportional fairness that considers the cultural and historic realities that have beset Black people, and it works actively to address the same. Right, so it's a it's a verb. It's a, it's an action word. It's not just you know. It's not a noun. It's just it requires constant activity, um, and it is it is rooted in this idea of segmented repair. Yeah, you talked about that last year. You talked about uh, not focusing on diversity in general, but focusing on black employees, for example, and then going to the next marginalized group. Is that what you're talking about in terms of segmenting? Do any companies do that well? Do any companies get it, in your opinion? Not that I'm aware of, but let me just say this. I'm going to toot the horn of my own employer. So the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis last year, at the heels of all of this, and let me just, here's another little caveat on that. The Fed arguably is one of the more can be regarded as, and in fact, sometimes is one of the more conservative organizations in the country. Mm-hmm. And yet, even in the midst of that, our awakening around race and race relations has just been nothing short of miraculous. I'm so proud of who we are becoming. And That's so wonderful. last the St. Louis Fed embarked on a racial equity assessment focused exclusively, exclusively on the Black employee lived experience. Oh, great. So it was a several month endeavor. And now we are working through the recommendations that came from that, from our consultants. And we're moving forward with, a, with I think, all of those recommendations that were um, discussed and, and, and suggested. But what I am most excited about is how bold we were in articulating the stance that we are focusing on Black employees first. And I think that that's the right, that's the way to go, not because I'm black, but because it's the most marginalized group. The, as I said, this country has understood and figured out how to hate based on its years and years of institutional behavioral and um, systemic practice at the expense of black people. So um, we've perfected it with black people. And so if we could figure out how to remedy it with black people, all the other races that also are impacted by the way that America hates, that the idea is that, that it will be remedied as well. Yeah, over makes time, sense. Right? Over time. Yes, makes sense. Makes sense. 
Well, that's great that maybe the Fed can be an example for other companies <laughs> or other organizations. Oh. Well, let's switch a little bit now to community. Let's talk about here in Louisville, we've had some real issues in our community, and we're not the only community that's had issues with race. What's been happening over the last year in communities in terms of either making progress or not making progress? Yeah, so that that's equally elusive, Kathy. I think, you know, what I'm what I can say is that, you know, what I've seen and what I know of course here to be true here in Louisville is that the the community that is the the consciousness, the coming together of the corporate sector and private sector and philanthropy and government and like all these sectors and the individual leaders that that buoy the economic sustenance of Louisville, um, the coming together uh, to f- to establish a new equity-based framework and a new equity lens and a and a more mature understanding of how racism has played out in our city that is happening with varying levels of efficacy and impact, but that is happening. So we, as an example have uh, under our chamber of commerce, we have a business council to end racism. I can say with some level of confidence that that probably never would have happened had Breonna Taylor not been murdered here. I just, I can't, I can't see that. I mean, I could be wrong. I just can't see why our corporate (laughs) business leaders would come together and say, we need to figure out how to end racism, except for a very violent call to do so. But not nonetheless, we have it now, and they are doing some uh, doing really great work. We have another group that's formed under Simmons College, and that's uh, called the Kerner Commission 2.0. I actually chair. Oh, wonderful! That, that commission, and we too are coming together with a couple of commitments that we're going to be looking for Louisville community and business leaders to make in furtherance of racial equity with the understanding that we need to better endear ourselves to our HBCUs as a community. We have, there's an organization, it's a national organization, it's called 110. And basically it's a pledge that many uh, organizations are undertaking to help advance racial minorities, black folks in their, in their workplaces and in community. And so you see a lot of that, which is great. So you've got a lot of these organizations that are committing pledging, if you will, to behave differently and to engage differently in and through Black community and to commit resources very differently. That's important. That's really important. Yep. But the question, though, still remains, is it going to be enough to assure that the branding, the understanding of like who Louisville is or who Minneapolis is or who Charlotte is or who Atlanta, you know, who these cities are to black people, because that will matter. So we still we still struggle with holding on to black talent here in, in the city en masse. And that is a city problem, right? That's a community issue. So we, we're still struggling with that. And we're also struggling to court more black talent here, given the reality of the black bleed that I just mentioned. And also given the reality that we still have yet to really reconcile a new, a new order in our uh, policing strategies, which a lot of black folks, black professionals in particular are asking for, what they're asking about before they're even considering looking at jobs um, and career advancement in cities like ours. 
Wow. Are there other communities that are doing really well? You talked about Minneapolis and Louisville having some challenges. What are the communities, in your opinion, that are handling this really well that are attracting Black talent as a result? I don't yet know enough to unpack what exactly is happening in these cities that's not happening in Louisville, as an example. I do know that when I hear about my contacts, my friends, my colleagues here who are engaging in this exodus, <laughs> they're going far west coast. So we're seeing California, Seattle. I'm seeing a lot of Colorado moves. I'm seeing a ton of Atlanta moves, lots of Charlotte, North Carolina moves, Houston, Dallas moves. So the, for Black people, for, for Black professionals. So that's like in the last year, the folks that I can think of that have left have gone to one of those one of those places. And so there either is, in fact, or is by perception, a softer landing for black people in those cities to either maneuver their maneuver, manage their professional lives and or live in the live a fulfilling and, you know, endearing, peaceful personal life in those cities. One of those two, if not both, must be at play um, for those folks as they're thinking about making these moves. Well, that's interesting because some of the cities you just mentioned are Southern cities. So it's not a North-South thing, it doesn't sound like. Right. No. That's uh, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, a lot of challenges, both for communities and corporations. <laughs> and I think you said uh, earlier in our session today that we've made a little progress, but it sounds like there's a lot more progress to be made. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, because we talked about this last year when I interviewed you last year, you asked the question and you said, this is the question all of us need to ask. And that is, do black people matter? Where are we with the answer to that question today, do you think? So what I probably said, I don't know if I answered that last year, but if I did, I'm sure I would have said no. You did, and you said no. (laughs) And I would still say no um, this year. And here's here's the deal, Kathy. We, We matter in context and in situations and in certain circumstances. But en masse, I'd say... When, when most people, I'd say white people, close their eyes at night and think about the next 50 to 100 years of America, what are people doing? Where are people going? What are we experiencing? There's not a whole lot of black folks that are just running around in that picture. So like if you envision black people in the future, where are they? Where, what are we doing? What are we being? What are we exposed to? What are we, where are we working? Where are we living? Where, what is our health status, right? So we don't, so just thinking about that, I still think that, you know, we're just, it's not really top of mind in a way that it, it should be. But we've also had 400 years of understanding that there are people who matter and then there are people who don't. That, that is, that is just, that is an American value, whether we like it or not. Racism American value, whether we like it, want to admit that or not. And so that value has been inculcated and nurtured for 400 years. So in a year, it is unrealistic to expect that any of that would be dismantled and maybe even diluted. But at the least, though, we want to assure that we're continuing in condemning racism, that we're continuing in assuring that there is greater visibility and vulnerability around how People are permitted to behave with us in mind. People meaning like collectively, corporations, 
education systems, healthcare systems, banking, how those organizations are permitted to behave with regard to Black lives has to be progressively different. Like every single day, there should be some demonstrable betterment from a behavior structure, structural, institutional, certainly policy standpoint that advances us to Black people finally being able to live in the fullness of the post-slavery promise. Absolutely. Accountability. It's all about accountability, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nikki, thank you very much for coming a second time to join us. Uh, I appreciate it very much, and I'm sure that our audience will appreciate it too, especially one year later. uh, It's very interesting to hear your reflections on what has happened, what hasn't happened, what needs to happen, where we go from here. Do you have any last words that you'd like to offer before we sign off today? Well, yeah, I just I just don't want it to feel doom and gloom. I don't want to be overly critical, but I do want to be very clear, at least in my lens and what my experiences, what they spell out for the reality that I think Black people face, that white people face, that this country will be facing from this point forward. And this is an, this is an entirely different normal, entirely different norm. We've never been really in a place where this kind of reconciliation has been called upon in this way. I mean, most of our civil rights movements have come off, you know, through the heels of black people just being tired of being murdered, quite frankly, police. I mean, that tends to be, they can just get tired of the murders. Um, and that tends to be the catalyst. But this one is, it feels a little different because we were in COVID because we had those, those three deaths back to back, Uh, We're in a different dispensation in time. So my hope and my prayer is that all of that together really means that we don't need to engage in any more. uh, We don't need to experience as a country any more senseless deaths for us to uh, for us to continue in this work that, you know, corporations, that individual leaders in those corporations really do the work to understand when and where racism is showing up because it's everywhere. It's like, that's the inertia. It is, it is everywhere, but that actively remedying it and actively addressing it, just cutting it off, cutting off the head of racism and then treating uh, the wound that it has left and then getting that venom that is coursing through our veins expelled. That really does help the entire infrastructure of this country, that this is an economic argument as, as much as it is about social justice and the right thing to do. But our our economic footing really does depend on how much we can get this together because we're not getting whiter, we're getting blacker. That's right. Democracy yeah. says we as a country will have to rely on black and brown people in right. the very, very near future and beyond for the economic sustenance of this country. So we gotta we have we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. We we have got to get this work done. I agree. I absolutely agree. And what I'd like to suggest is that you come back again next year and we'll have this conversation again and see where we are. (laughs) I'd love it. Thank you for the opportunity. I'd love to. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Culture Cafe. If you liked what you heard, connect with us at millerconsultants.com. You can access the show notes and receive our free materials. See you next episode.